Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and thank you for slipping us into your queue today. This is episode number 79 of The Next Track. We're going to get to this episode's topic in just a moment, but I wanted to mention this great news about ECM Records. ECM is one of the largest labels for jazz and classical music, and starting on November 17th, their entire catalog will finally be available to stream on most of the streaming services, including Apple Music and Spotify and Amazon Tidal and others. ECM was one of the last streaming holdouts, so this is really, really great news. Kirk has more on this in an article at his Kirkville blog, and there's a link to it in the show notes. Now, a couple of weeks ago in my next track pick, I mentioned a conversation starter about music that I toss out from time to time, and it is this, which confounds me. It is not uncommon nowadays to still hear 40-year-old music from 1977, but in 1977, we rarely heard 40-year-old music from 1937. I mean, if you think about it, if you tune into a classic rock radio station today, you might hear something by the Doobie Brothers, let's say China Grove, and you'll hear that song segue into something by Muse, for example. But 40 years ago, in 1977, while you certainly might hear China Grove by the Doobie Brothers on the radio, you would never hear it segue into something from 1937, like Fred Astaire or Tommy Dorsey. Now, why is that? Now, there's no right answer to this query. There are, are lots of factors, and it's fun to talk about. But that got us thinking about how important a year 1977 actually was for music. And, and the fact that in a lot of cases, that music is still popular and influential this week. Yeah, I would think that 1977 is a watershed era. A number of things happened to popular music. On the one hand, music started fragmenting a lot more. Before 1976-77, you had rock, you had pop, you had rhythm and blues. But then you got, in 76 and 77, you started getting disco and punk and the early new wave, and you got this sort of new album-oriented rock that would eventually become a radio format. You would have these bands who were coming along and picking up where the progressive rock bands had left off and turning this music into sort of power pop. And 1977 also has a remarkable number of debut albums from extremely influential bands, hugely influential albums on their own, and albums by artists who had been working for a while but had huge successes that made their careers in that year. Let me just start with two. The Eagles' Hotel California, which is arguably one of their best albums. It's not their best-selling album. It's The Eagles' Greatest Hits Volume 2, I think, that was out in 75 or 76. But Hotel California is the quintessential Eagles album. And the second one is Billy Joel's album, The Stranger. Billy Joel had been doing well. He was touring, he was selling records, but they didn't get up into the top 10, and The Stranger just put him up into the stratosphere. Yeah, those are those are two perfect examples of the sort of mainstream rock from 1977 that's still with us. But here's how wacky 1977 was. It was the same year that Nevermind the Bollocks, Here's the Sex Pistols was released. I'm, that album changed my life. I mean, it's, I, I still go back and listen to it a lot, and it's very influential today. But as different as the Eagles and the Sex Pistols were, both albums still resonate and have influence today. And the first Clash album came out in April 1977, though we didn't get it in the States right away. We got their second album, Give Them Enough Rope, in 1978. Then there was a U.S. release of the first Clash album with different tracks on it from the U.K. version. 
But all of this punk music that was happening in the UK, which obviously, you know, changed a lot of the way popular music was heading, all started in 76 and 77. A lot of them started performing in 76. There was that famous show in Manchester at the Free Trade Hall that we've talked about in the past, and pretty much everyone who was there went on to form a band. And that was in June 76, but it was the following year that all of this music started getting released. And it was like the floodgates opened for all this stuff. Go a little bit softer, and you've got Elvis Costello's first album that year, too. That's really amazing. In fact, the thing I think is very interesting is the same week that Saturday Night Fever was released was the same week that Elvis Costello appeared on Saturday Night Live and did his infamous version of Radio Radio. And when you think of those two things happening at the same week, it just gives you an idea of how broad a spectrum of music uh, was popular at the time. Yeah, that, that's a good point. There were these constant juxtapositions. And I think even back then, we were listening to a lot of these different bands. We weren't stuck into a single sort of narrow genre. I was in New York and we had WNEW radio, which especially in the evenings was very adventurous and they would play full albums and they would play really obscure music. And, you know, it's obviously not the same up in your little one-horse town in Rhode Island. Well, let me just say that we didn't listen to as many Providence stations as we listened to Boston radio stations. And at the time, in 1977, WBCN and WCOZ were very influential rock stations, not only with bringing in a new music stuff, but they played a lot of local music. And that's one of the things that uh, I think is really amazing when you compare radio from then to now. The radio stations were heavily involved in the local music scene, and bands were producing singles and EPs and sometimes albums that were regionally popular, and they weren't giving these things away. If you wanted that music, you had to go out and buy it. Radio stations were also playing a lot of regional and local music on the air. For instance, The Cars were a local Boston band that local Boston radio stations played. That was their, their jumping off point. Um, you don't see that so much nowadays, but... Back then, in the in the mid seventies, radio stations were much more involved in 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 the local music scene and promoting local music. Before we go on to music, though, I want to go into culture briefly because culturally, the year nineteen seventy seven has some other very important milestones. Uh, I would say, let's just look at cinema: Star Wars, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Saturday Night Fever. Those three movies each had huge effects on culture. And Star Wars has become, as we know, this multi-billion dollar sequel machine. Close Encounters is what really launched Steven Spielberg's career. And obviously, Saturday Night Fever, you know, we talked about disco a few episodes. Lots of links in the show notes, by the way. A couple of other interesting movies came out in 1977. One of them was the Grateful Dead movie, which was a, a mishmash of concert footage and interviews from October 1974. Um, that Jerry Garcia had spent years working on editing. And it really was a key moment for Deadheads that all of a sudden we were legitimized, that there was a movie in big movie theaters. And there was also that animated version of The Hobbit. Do you remember that? I do remember it, and I don't like it that much. But, you know, really, it was all we had. It was exactly. I, now, I remember 1977 being like a, a peak Tolkien era because... When I was in high school, in, I graduated in 1977, I took an English class on Tolkien novels. It was so popular among students that uh, we pressured them into giving us a class on it. And the other interesting musical movie that came out literally the same week as Saturday Night Fever was ABBA the movie. I never heard of that. I had never heard of it either. I have nothing to say about it. But 
you know, ABBA, while not disco, they were in that same sort of pop vein as the Bee Gees. Maybe this went unnoticed, but it was quite coincidental that it came out at the same time. Now, back in the day, we used to watch a lot of network TV, right? That's all we had. We watched TV series. So I made a list of some of the TV series, not that started in 1977, but that we were all watching in 1977. And if you're old enough to remember this, you'll 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 be able to picture the atmosphere from all these shows. And these are only the things that are currently on. These aren't the things in syndication, like The Honeymooners and The Twilight Zone. Right, right. So you had The Six Million Dollar Man and Wonder Woman. You had Happy Days, Charlie's Angels, Laverne and Shirley. The Mary Tyler Moore Show was in its last year, Hawaii Five O. You had All in the Family, The Bob Newhart Show, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids, remember that one? Kojak, The Jeffersons, Sanford and Son, and MASH. All of those were on in 1977. You know, you mentioned Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, which were uh, sitcoms that were set in the fabulous 50s. They were really popular shows. And actually, this 50s revival had been going on since uh, American Graffiti had come out, speaking of Steven Spielberg. Right. So this brings me back to my original uh, generalized theory of music relativity. These shows depicted the 50s as a, a very different era and culture, but the 50s we're only two decades previous, but the music is very different. The clothes and the attitudes are very different. And yet I think today, looking back 20 years, it doesn't seem as old as the 50s seemed old in the 70s. You know what I mean? Well, for the most part, you could wear clothes today that you wore in the 70s and not look out of place. But all the clothes that they wore in happy days, you would look like you were either a rockabilly musician or, you know, you were into vintage clothing or something. Yeah, it's true that there was a dividing line that comes in the 60s. And in a previous show, we talked about 1967 and the Summer of Love. And, and it could be that dividing line that set, you know, the past to the future, that all of the upheavals in the 60s and the early 70s. That could be one of the big changes. So I grew up in New York, and the summer of 77 was one of the most extraordinary summers for concerts that you could imagine. And I found, and I'll put in the show notes, a, a reproduction of an advertisement that Madison Square Garden Put out, And it was either in a newspaper or a magazine, or maybe it was some sort of a poster that they would put on walls. And it's saying thank you from the hottest summer in our history. So from June to August 1977, Madison Square Garden hosted Led Zeppelin, Crosby, Stills and Nash, Fleetwood Mac, Pink Floyd, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, Bad Company, and yes, arguably Bad Company may have been forgotten. <laughs> oh, well, no, they're a classic rock staple. You hear them a lot in America still, sure, yeah. But every other band in that list is, you know, major bands that not that had best-selling albums like Fleetwood Mac or Pink Floyd or that had long careers like Led Zeppelin, ELP, and yes. But also at Madison Square Garden that year, just to pile on a little bit, not in the summer, the Eagles, Kiss, Queen, Jethro Tull, Chicago, Rod Stewart, Peter Frampton... Donovan, a little bit wary about that. Boston, Jimmy Buffett, Genesis, and ELO. Interestingly, Jeff Lynn's ELO just announced a, a 35-stop North American tour just this past week. So ELO, still popular. In addition to all the great concerts at Madison Square Garden, the Palladium, and other venues, there was a huge concert that took place on September the 3rd at Englishtown. Grateful Dead, New Riders of the Purple Sage, and the Marshall Tucker Band. This was really interesting for a number of reasons. It was the first concert after Mickey Hart had broken his arm. He drove his Porsche off a hill in California someplace, broke his arm. It was only saved from death by a tree branch that kept the car from going down a valley. 
So this was really the first concert when they came back. And there were more than 130,000 people or something. Really? I remember the preparation up to this concert. I really didn't want to go because I've never been a fan of those big outdoor concerts. And it was an incredibly hot day. In fact, that whole summer had been very hot. And if you... I'll try and find some pictures to link to in the show notes. They took shipping containers and they piled up around the area where all the spectators were. So you couldn't get out. You couldn't climb out. And it was deathly hot. And apparently, I think they were spraying water on the people because it was so hot. Yet The Dead played an extraordinary concert. It's available as one of the Dick's Picks releases. And I'll link to it in the show notes. I think it's on Apple Music even. But I didn't know that the day before there was another huge concert in New York. Did you know about this? Uh, which one? One of the biggest concerts in Central Park, the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. I think that was one of Brian Wilson's rare appearances, too. I didn't even know when that happened. Oh. And I was living there, and I didn't even hear about it. Oh, wow. More than 100,000 people in Central Park went to see the Beach Boys on the 2nd of September. So you had two 100,000-plus concerts in the New York area in two days. That's remarkable. It is. The Beach Boys coming at number 28 with their album Love You on Chris Gow's poll. Don't remember it. It's really the end of the Beach Boys' career if, if it hadn't ended five years earlier. Well, they didn't create a lot of new relevant music, but um, they toured a lot. I mean, they were still popular in concert. 1977 was the year of Margaritaville. Now, not everything was good in 1977, and that song is just one of the worst earworms, I think, in the history of music. Oh, well. You hear that once, and you're just, you're just ruined for the day. I, I don't think you want to offend any parrot heads, but that song is still heard. You will still hear it. Good point. You know, I wonder if it re that 1960s dividing line could really be strong, because in 1977, we would hear some oldies from the 50s. You'd hear early Elvis, and you'd hear Chuck Berry and things like that. And I'm not sure, were there oldies radio stations even? Oh, sure, yeah. In fact, um, in the 60s, when I was a kid, I used to listen to a station in Providence called WGNG, and they called themselves Golden Great, and they used to play oldies. Now, here, this period of time was in the late 60s, early 70s, and they were playing music from the 50s, like I said before, which was only a decade or so earlier. And yet, these songs were designated as oldies, which reminds me of another example that I often throw at people, and that's that in 1969 at the Woodstock Festival, a band called Sha Na Na performed uh, a set of oldies. These were college kids that were dressing up as, as uh, 50s rock performers with, you know, uh, leather jackets and tank tops and gold lame and all that stuff, and they really went overboard. And the song that they performed at Woodstock was a song by Danny and the Juniors called At the Hop, which was a hit in 1958 only 11 years prior to Woodstock. And the music was obviously taken as a joke and obviously was done comically and ironically. But anyway, to answer your question, yes, there is an oldies radio station format. Now, in my 800 hours of research listening to music from Whoa. 1977, did I think you really, I... Did you really listen to that much music? It was great. There's a lot of great music. Some of it, some of it like Boston and Kansas. Okay, they're a little bit over the top and I don't really care for them anymore. But there's, there's lots of great stuff. But I think I have found the one song that is the most influential. It's not a song I particularly care for. It's not an artist I care for. But I think it has had more influence on popular music than any others. And that's Aerosmith's Walk This Way. Their career was flagging in the 1980s. And while that song had been popular, the band was, you know, they were looking forward to a period of playing their oldies for the next 30 years. So in 1986, producer Rick Rubin pulled out the Toys in the Attic album, which had Walk This Way on it, and suggested that Run DMC cover the song. 
And not only was this a hugely popular song for Run DMC, but it was the song that opened the floodgates to rap, to white people listening to rap, because the video got on MTV, and it was really the first rock hip-hop video that, that broke hip-hop out of the, the urban mold and made it a lot more expansive. And all this from this 1977 song by Aerosmith. Well, I think you also might find some Aerosmith fans who would say it was rap before rap was cool, because there's no doubt that Steven Tyler is rapping to the rhythm of that song. So some people might even argue that that's a precursor to rap itself, or at least to white rap anyway. I, I want to just mention a few really popular albums from that year. I mean, you've got Fleetwood Mac's Rumors, which is it the best-selling album of all times? Uh, it's in the top batch. It's close, yeah. yeah. You, you've got um, Hotel California by the Eagles. You've got Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder, but that was really a 1976 album, but late 76, so it came out, and everyone was listening to it in 77. You've got Super Tramps, Give a Little Bit, that's the 12-string guitar one, Rush Closer to the Heart, Boston, anything by Boston, they all sound the same. Meatloaf, Bad Out of Hell. Now, that's one that's probably been more or less forgotten, and in many ways, one can be pleased that it's been more or less forgotten? Oh, I, I don't know. I think uh, Paradise by the Dashboard Lights is still like core dad rock. So I think, you know, there's still some re relevancy there. Um, I recently read an article with Todd Rundgren, who produced Bad Out of Hell. And he was saying that the album is supposed to be, at least as far as he's concerned, a spoof of Bruce Springsteen. So that's interesting. I'll have a link to that article in the show notes. And where was Bruce that year? Bruce had some... Bruce was the big absent in 1977. He apparently had some legal trouble. Um, I'm not exactly sure on the specifics, but wasn't he tied up from recording because he had some kind of, someone was preventing him from recording? Or But he was out of the picture for like two or three years, wasn't he? Yeah, he was out of the studio for nearly a year. He had a, a legal battle with his former manager, Mike Appel, and they settled in 1977. He returned to the studio in late 77, released Darkness on the Edge of Town in 78, Remember that Born to Run was released in, what, August 75, so we went three years without a new Springsteen album when he was really, really at a peak. He toured a lot, but he just didn't record, and that doesn't mean we didn't hear him all the time. It was, you know, I think at least four songs from Born to Run got constant radio play, and I knew them all because my friend John, he's the guy from the disco who took the disco lessons. Uh, he had an 8-track player in his car, and he had an 8-track tape of that, along with, you know, three or four other records. So whenever there was nothing good on the radio, we'd put Bruce Springsteen on. But that sort of rock was kind of fading at the time. It wasn't the most popular in 77, because you had the disco, you had the punk, and you had this sort of late progressive rock. That kind of working-class rock wasn't really a 1977 thing. Yeah, I guess in hindsight, it was probably a good thing that he was able to lay low during these very fatty sort of, uh, you know, the disco era and the punk era and the new wave where when that stuff kind of settled down, he was able to come out and, and get more attention for, for his music. We can't talk about 1977 without talking about Talking Heads. Their first album came out. If there is one hugely influential album from the year, it's that. You had albums like television's marquee moon which interestingly i owned this album back in the day and i didn't really like it that much i don't think i owned it in 1977 maybe 78 or 79 but looking up on wikipedia it's really interesting to see how many people thought this was such a great album and how influential it was and how many musicians have looked back at this and particularly on tom verlaine's guitar style and one of the things that i'm seeing here is that a number of guitarists 
see this as sort of the inspiration for what became alternative rock. Everything from the Pixies and Sonic Youth and U2. Stephen Morris of Joy Division says it's one of his favorite albums. Michael Stipe of R.E.M. And it, it's interesting for basically a, a two-off band, because they had two albums before they split up and went in, in different directions, that this was so immensely popular. I, I listened to a lot of it today, and the song Marquee Moon is wonderful. It's like a ten and a half minute song. But the rest of it is, it's pretty, it's pretty mediocre for that sort of music. I remember Marquee Moon being talked about at the time as being very representative of that New York sound. Although I didn't care for it that much either. I liked Adventure better. But um, you would hear Marky Moon occasionally, at, you know, overnight on, on radio stations and stuff like that. I don't remember it being very impactful with audiences as much as it was with critics. So Robert Christgau, the American rock critic, on his website, he has a number of the Village Voices Paz and Jop critics polls. That's Paz and Jop, yes. And they sum up a sort of survey among critics to see who thinks an album was really good. In 1977, I mean, the 30 albums in here, half of them are hugely influential. Sex Pistols and Elvis Costello and Television and Rumors, we mentioned them. Steely Dan's Asia. I've never been a fan of Steely Dan. Everyone's always said, oh, but it's so well produced and they use it for testing stereos. And it's a style of music that it, to me is dated an awful lot. I'll tell you, it's funny because I used to hang with guys and we thought Steely Dan was the most ut. We thought they were really pristine, great songwriters, great music. And I remember when Asia came out, we went, we went over to somebody's house and we got, somebody got the album or somebody, or they were playing it on the radio or something, playing the full album on the radio. And I mean, we just sat there wrapped listening to how good it sounded. And I think we appreciated the sound more than the actual songs because it was really well-produced record. A lot of people still cite Asia as a, you know, like you say. Uh, just a great sounding record. Moving on, we have the Ramones, Rocket to Russia. Never a Ramones fan. Um, I never was. I, I, they didn't have the musicality of The Clash. They didn't have the anger of the Sex Pistols. It, it always seemed to me like throwaway music. Well, I always thought they were very funny, uh, on top of being, you know, very sincere about, you know, doing these two-minute songs that, you know, have a very nostalgic feel, but also have a very cutting-edge punk feel. They had two albums that year. The second one was called The Ramones Leave Home. Peter Gabriel's first solo album came out in 1977. David Bowie was pretty busy. He was actually involved with four albums that year. Two of his own albums that he recorded with Brian Eno, Low and then Heroes. And frankly, to me, Heroes is not only one of the best songs of 1977, if not the best, but it's one of the best songs of music ever. I would vote for that as one of the best songs of all time, even in front of Like a Rolling Stone, which is what Rolling Stone magazine says is the best rock song of all time. And... I was looking up, and I'd read this before, but I was looking up this morning about the way it was produced. And what's really fascinating is, you know, if you're familiar with the song, you know that Bowie starts out with this sort of cigarette and bourbon voice, and he's singing very fluidly, and then he starts yelling, and it grows in intensity. And this was a fascinating technique that Tony Visconti had figured out. There were three microphones to capture his vocals. One was right in front of his mouth, one was 20 feet away, and the other was 50 feet away. And as the song went on, he would mute one microphone and shift to the next one. Bowie was obviously listening to himself in headphones, so he had to yell louder to be heard. And that gives that song a presence. Uh, it's, just, it's just chilling the, the amount of emotion he puts into the vocals because of that. Yeah, it's a neat technique. It's, uh, they gated the microphone so that as he got louder, 
the uh, the room noise would also be picked up, and they'd get a really nice, sweet vocal sound, really nice presence to it. And and it's it's one of these wall of sound type songs with music everywhere, from that that droning Robert Fripp guitar line to you know Eno synthesizers and and the 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 backing vocals and everything. It really does sound like a Phil Spector type production, just a modernized version of it. So Bowie was involved with two other albums that year, and they were both with Iggy Pop. Uh, the first was The Idiot, and the second was Lust for Life. It's hard to overestimate how influential those two albums were, in particular the first one, because Bowie co-wrote or wrote some of the songs, Sister Midnight, China Girl, Night Clubbing. But those two albums brought Iggy Pop back after, what, he was he had had a heroin addiction and he'd been out of music for a while. Yeah, and almost to, to drive home the point that he was clean, the... Uh... The album cover of Lust for Life features this matinee idol, pop idol, Iggy Pop on the cover, which is, well, for him, uh, very unconventional. Well, especially if you, you know, listen to the music. And on Lust for Life, Iggy Pop wrote all the lyrics, and Bowie wrote the music for seven of them, and Pop wrote the music for 16. The, the two powerful albums, um, I, I don't think Iggy Pop has done anything as good since those two. Arguably. So a couple of other of the most respected albums of 77 include Neil Young's American Stars and Bars. The Beach Boys came out with Love You, which I don't remember. And so the, the number 30 on the 1977 Paz and Jop Critics Poll is, to me, another one of the most hugely influential records of the century in its Kraftwerk's Trans-Europe Express. Oh, yeah. We've talked about them before. That uh, that album had a tremendous—that's the, uh, the never mind the bollocks for the DIY crowd. I mean, it's— it uh, influenced so much music from not only, um, you know, electronic music in general, but also pop music and post-punk music and dance music, disco. As we mentioned a couple of episodes ago when we talked about disco music, we had those wonderful songs by Giorgio Moroder with Donna Summer singing. And I think you put those together with Kraftwerk and you've set the stage now for all of that early 1980s synth electronic pop music and everything that has flowed from there. This has been fascinating to look back at some of this music, in part because I remember a lot of it myself, but in part because there really is a lot of music. Well, you know, we covered quite a bit, but we didn't really cover a lot. I mean, all you have to do is, is look at any list of albums released in 1977, and if you don't recognize 50% of it, then maybe you haven't been paying attention anyway. But it sure seems like 77 was the apex of a remarkable period of record releases, that still is listenable and influential today. All right, it is time to present our next tracks. Kirk, what are you going to be listening to? So for my next track, I want to pick an album that was released in 1977 and that was also recorded live in part at a concert I attended in 1977. It's Encore by Tangerine Dream. It was a two-album set with four tracks, one on each side. It was released in October of 77. It was recorded in the spring I saw their concert at Avery Fisher Hall, which is part of Lincoln Center. It's a classical venue, essentially. And it was a wonderful show. They had this Laserium light show. Laserium was a thing that did these light shows in the New York Planetarium. We would go sometimes on the weekend and have some recreational stimulants and sit back in the, in the planetarium chairs and listen to Pink Floyd music and watch these laser light shows. Tangerine Dream was hugely influential because they played this sort of instrumental electronic music and they had sequencers and mellotrons this music is at the root of a lot of contemporary electronic music today um, some of it is dance music and some of it's you know more ambient 
According to Wikipedia, they have 156 albums, so I'm not going to listen to too many of them. I'll listen to Encore and a few of the other ones from the mid-70s that I liked a lot. So, Tangerine Dream and Encore. What about you, Doug? You're going to have to pick something from 1977. I know, and it's not easy because um, during my radio career, I've had to play a lot of music from 1977 over and over again, and so much so that I'm just burnt on a lot of it. I mean, for instance, I will never listen to Fleetwood Mac's Rumors all the way through again, ever. But... An album I, I do want to check out again is Eric Clapton's Slow Hand. That has about five radio songs on it. Cocaine, Wonderful Tonight, Lay Down Sally, The Core, Mean Old Frisco, I guess to a degree. I had this album when it first came out. In fact, a lot of my friends did too, but I don't remember the non-radio songs on it. So I really do want to give it a listen. The other funny thing about this album is I, I definitely remember thinking that this was an album, it was produced by Glenn Johns for Eric Clapton. It was an album that had songs on it that seemed to cater to lots of different kinds of radio listeners. For instance, there's Cocaine, which was which had already been a, a fairly well-known uh, rock hit by J.J. Cale, and then Clapton just kind of electrified it a little bit. Wonderful Tonight was produced for, you know, like easy listening, M.O.R. at the time, for that kind of release. There's also some southern sounding music on there for 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 country music listeners so it 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 didn't seem to me like a very cohesive record at the time and that's when i started recognizing that oh gee maybe records are being made that way on purpose and it's also about the time that people started thinking of eric clapton as selling out and later there when he did the Michelob commercials they really thought he had sold out but the first inklings of the sellout were with this album, I think. But he had had a lot of hits um, since 1975. I Shot the Sheriff was out. Uh, EC was here. His live album is really good. And then you have Slow Hand, which I think is a great record. It sounds, The Core is one of my favorite songs. So I'm going to give it another listen all the way through. Eric Clapton, Slow Hand is my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at thenexttrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.